0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome everyone back to Pain Talk podcast. It's been a while since I've been here, probably about a few weeks. It's been a really interesting summer, very challenging. I'm sure most of you out there have been struggling as well. It It is a process, I think, uh, coming to terms with COVID and the impact that it's had on all of our lives. Uh, kids have gotten back to school last week. I just sent one of my children back to Montreal, which is the hotspot for the country. And we seem to be trying to find our way through this. I had a really interesting conversation with one of my colleagues about how this feels like grief, that we're going through these processes around change and grief. Uh, So we fluctuate between frustration, anger, disbelief, so trying to adjust to what we would call a new normal. So I think I'm starting to feel that I can come around to the other side, but there's so much in our lives that has changed since since, uh, COVID. We can Hopefully find our way through this and support each other and uh, continuing to talk about pain, which I think is the most important thing. So I'm going to try a little bit of different uh, things this year. So this is my second year actually doing the podcast, I'm hoping to ro- to line up uh, new interviews. I want to have a focus on sleep. Uh, I know that the Canadian Pain Task Force is coming out with some new recommendations or new information around programs and suggestions about how we integrate the country around providing more access for individuals who are living with complex pain. So this month, though, I'm going to focus on a condition that we're seeing more and more through the emergency department, uh, primarily, although I'm sure family doctors are also experiencing this as well. We did talk about this in a previous podcast, but I wanted to dig into this a little bit deeper as more and more data and information comes out. So this is cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So we're going to release the podcast, uh, one podcast, uh, every two weeks now because of a time restraint. But if other interesting topics come up, I'm quite happy to dig in and bring that information to all of you. So this week, though, and uh, in two weeks' time, we're going to talk about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So I, I'm curious about how many people have actually seen this in your practice. And sometimes it requires a index of suspicion or just a willingness to think this may be contributing to the patient's suffering. And often, when these patients present in my environment in the emergency department, they are absolutely miserable. It is a very different kind of presentation. But people, when they do get this particular syndrome, are really distressed. And it does require a number of interventions that we'll get into as we go along with the podcast. So, let's just talk about Jake. So Jake is a 28-year-old male with blood-curdling, Monty Python-style vomiting. And this is coming from his toes. And I want to tell you that this is true. I mean, when someone is in the emergency department who's vomiting from this syndrome, it is a different kind of vomiting. And you have to hear it to believe it. And it just feels like it's coming from their toes. He's clutching a vomit bag, and he looks really uncomfortable. He is a daily cannabis user. The only thing that seems to help him is to get into a hot shower or a hot bathtub. When he's examined by our triage nurse, his vital signs are normal, and the rest of his exam is unremarkable. So we'll come back to Jake uh, when we look at how we might want to approach this very complex problem. So what I hope you learn through these podcasts, the next couple of podcasts, is that what is cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, what causes it, and how can we manage it? So I just want to come back to legalization of cannabis that happened in Canada in in October of 2018. And this was primarily for recreational cannabis use. Uh, Prior to that, we have always had legalization around medical uh, use for cannabis. So this was the act of C45. So what has happened since legalization? So we know prior to legalization that Canada had the second highest consumption of cannabis in the world. The U.S. was actually first. So what we have seen is a steady increase in individuals who are using cannabis, in particular the older male between the ages of 45 to 64. So that seems to be the group that seems to be increasing their use. Now Nova Scotia, which is the province that I live in, has the highest use in Canada, which is quite surprising. We are now up to 26% of individuals surveyed uh, use cannabis uh, in in, uh, Nova Scotia. The Canadian average is around 17%. So this is quite striking, actually. So as was mentioned, now what was important as well in those initial surveys is that that 15 to 24-year-old age group were the highest users of cannabis, on average about 33%. Now, thank goodness through the years that uh, we have seen legalization, that group has not increased. And as I mentioned, where the increase has been primarily are in the older males uh, between the ages of 45 and 65. So quite interesting. The other concern, obviously, is that about 13% of Canadian workers consume cannabis before or during work so this is another issue around work related safety so these kinds of trends i think are important to learn about and there's a a great webpage that uh, trends this out so we every quarter we get a report on how cannabis has been used in our country what it always makes me Pause with or think about is that when you think about that high risk group, even though the numbers are not increasing, thank goodness, is that uh, especially in Nova Scotia, you know, are our, our 15 to 24 year olds, uh, Nova Scotia males, do they consume the highest amount of cannabis in the world? And some of the data would borne out to say that this is true. So that is concerning, uh, especially if we're trying to minimize the risk of major complications such as cannabis use disorder or even some challenges around the cognitive uh, aspects of how kids are functioning, how they're driving, all these kinds of things. So that 15 to 24-year-old group has not had an increase in numbers that are using, but we still have a very high uh, number of Nova Scotians in that age group who use. It's around 33%. That is quite staggering. If we look at cannabis from a medical use perspective... What does the data tell us about the benefit of cannabis for the management of pain? So we know that the use of cannabis for acute pain, there is there is no evidence that supports the use in acute pain. When we look at chronic pain, there is some benefit in particular uh, in certain populations. Uh, especially those with neuropathic pain. But for every 100 people we offer medical cannabis to, only nine actually improve with treatment. And that treatment is actually based, these studies are based on a time frame of between four and 12 weeks. We're only looking at a 30% reduction in overall pain. So the benefit of cannabinoids in the medical area of pain, is very limited, as are all all the other uh, pharmacotherapies that we use. Although medications such as amitriptyline, uh, for every 100 people that use amitriptyline, about 25% will improve with treatment. So it's definitely much better than cannabinoids. But it is something that I feel is important that we're able to offer patients, but we also have to be able to help them um, understand how to manage the risk, what is a realistic expectation around how it's going to benefit their pain. And um, now in the pain population, we haven't seen this cannabinoid hyperemesis uh, syndrome as much as we've seen in recreational users. And there's a number of reasons why that may be happening, but it will be really interesting to see how this uh, uh, rolls out as time goes on. So, overall, we have seen an increase in cannabis use in Canada from 14 to 17 percent. And that fastest growth is in that middle age, older male. So, coming back to cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, what is it? So, it was first reported in the Australian literature in 2004. And this was primarily around the eMERGE literature. So, this is where it started to manifest. So, it was seen as a syndrome often in chronic cannabis users, and what was happening is that they would present with recurrent nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain, and what was pathognomonic about the diagnosis is that the only way these individuals got relief was to go into a hot shower or to bath, and it was was a kind of a pathological kind of showering. They would stay in these showers for four or five hours at any given time. This syndrome was actually refractory to any typical antiemetics that we would use in the emergency room or even at home. And this syndrome would also develop years after someone had been using cannabis for a long time and then suddenly they would get this syndrome. What was strange about this is that it was actually almost a paradoxical response to cannabis. Because as we know, it can be used for chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. So it's one of the indications for the medical use of cannabis. So why is it that we can use it to treat nausea, but at the same time it can cause significant vomiting and belly pain? And it's quite interesting looking at the literature, and we'll explore that as well as we go along, why this might be happening. How common is it? Most of us feel that it is under-recognized and under-reported. So looking at some of the data that's out there, and this was one study, uh, Hernandez, out of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2018, And in their group, what they did is they did a chart review where they identified 494 cases. The mean age was 31 years old. 36% of them were male. The majority that they identified were actually uh, female. So of those groups that they identified, about 19% were regular cannabis users, meaning that they used more than three times per week. There were also a number that were smoking on average about 20 cigarettes a day per month. So they were people that were chronic users. They weren't really using a lot of cannabis. So looking at the the number of patients that on average, it was probably about 20% of those chronic users. The other thing that they identified, which was really important, is that how costly this condition can be and how easy it is to miss it, meaning that there are direct and indirect costs, both in repeat emergency department visits and family physician visits, as well as the numerous investigations that these patients undergo. And this was a major urban center as well. It wasn't even looking at the rural area. So 43% of them had repeat emergency department visits. 92% had blood work done in the emergency department. 92% received IV fluids. 89% received uh, antiemetics. 27% went on to receive opiates. 19% underwent imaging 8% 8% were admitted to hospital, and 8% were referred to gastroenterology. So you can see the uh, the burden within the healthcare system and trying to identify what was creating the issues around vomiting. But even when they knew the vomiting was there, uh, what sorts of therapies were being introduced? So it was very, very costly overall to the healthcare system. You still need to help these patients manage this condition. It wouldn't be that you would not offer them uh, treatment, but generally... After you have investigated them the first time, often they don't need repeat investigations unless you're concerned that there's something new happening within that tissue or a progression of a pre-existing disease. So let's look at what causes it. So generally the mechanism is unknown, but there are a couple of theories that are out there. So one of the theories is that this occurs in chronic cannabis users resetting of a particular receptor located within the hypothalamus, and we call this the vanilloid uh, receptor. The other theory is that this has to do with the increase that we're seeing in THC potency. So as we know, the two active ingredients that we think about are THC and CBD. So this seems to be related to the THC, and as the THC potency has increased over the years is that we're starting to see this syndrome appear. So that's basically the two different theories. So let's just talk about the vanilloid receptor because it's really an interesting receptor. So they're all over our body, but they are concentrated in the vomiting center in the hypothalamus. So these receptors have both a pro vomiting property as well as a blocking of the vomiting property. So they can actually drop uh, the need to vomit versus they can accelerate the need to vomit, I guess, or the anti-emetic and proemetic properties, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so this becomes really important when we start looking at THC concentration. Because what the studies sort of suggest is that in the lower THC concentrations, it can actually prevent vomiting. But as you start to get into these higher THC concentrations, it can actually promote vomiting. The other thing about these vanilloid receptors is they have a thermoregulatory component. So when temperatures start to go up, a greater than 43 degrees Celsius, they actually can block the vomiting reflex that is being stimulated. So this becomes important when we start looking at why they go to the hot baths or why we can use something called capsaicin as well, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. These vanilloid receptors seem to be very important in not only helping to control vomiting, but also how they can actually, in the higher THC concentrations, can actually induce vomiting. And that because they're very heat sensitive, uh, when you start to increase the temperature in these receptors, that they can actually help with the vomiting effect. THC binds very readily to these receptors, and as was mentioned, the low concentrations actually block vomiting, whereas the higher concentrations promote vomiting. Quite interesting, actually, when you look at it that way. So what we think is happening is that there's a chronic overstimulation of these receptors, uh, which disrupts the normal functioning of the endocannabinoid system. So it messes up the body's intrinsic control of the nausea and vomiting, when we look at how we treat them, it's it's obviously focusing in on that vanilloid receptor, but also the other thing that is very similar to how these patients present is a syndrome called cyclic vomiting syndrome, as well as the chemo-related anticipatory nausea and vomiting. So they may share some other mechanisms, not just the vanilloid receptor. It's often called the transient receptor potential vanilloid uh, 1. So we see it as TRPV1. I'm not very good at pronouncing some of these words. <laughs> so just, uh, but that's okay. I think I think you're probably going to probably get it. <laughs> so the factors influencing uh, the development, when we talked about the THC concentration, it's quite stunning when you start to look at how cannabis has been cultivated, adapted to meet the need of the individual who's using it. So since 1995, we've seen this huge uptake in THC concentration, which has gone from about a 3% to about a 27%. And what has happened is that in these new plants is that the individual has cultivated out the CBD, or they can actually cultivate in the CBD, but primarily we've seen this drastic drop in CBD concentration. Initially from around, in 2008, it was around 8%. Uh, now at the average concentration is about a 0.2%. So for the recreational user, the higher the concentration, the better. So this has actually brought in some other types of cannabis use out there, which is the shatter, uh, as well as these poppers. And so these are very high THC concentration. So this becomes a problem chronically for that receptor that we were talking about, the vanilloid receptor. So let's look at the pathophysiology of vomiting just to come around for a sec, because this becomes important when we're trying to target these areas around the pharmacotherapy. And it is very complicated. And I know that in my work in palliative care, One of the most frustrating things that I'll see is patients who are prescribed uh, opiate analgesics, and then they start to get some complications around gut dysmotility, constipation, and then they're vomiting. And when they present to the emergency room, often clinicians are reaching for... Uh, antiemetics that often don't work great for those patients, meaning that they're often antiemetics that are working in the brain but do nothing for the dysmotility that we see around opioids. So you need an antiemetic that's more targeted to the gut, targeted to that opioid. So it's really important that we think about the mechanism when we're trying to think about what kind of antiemetic we would actually use for that patient. So the epidemiology can be really challenging to diagnose, and there's a great mnemonic called vomiting, uh, which can help you think about a differential. So looking at the causes of vomiting, you can look at V as being vestibular or vagal reflex, uh, such as pain. So when you get uh, significant pain, you can actually vomit. Uh, You can look at opiates, which is the O, M is migraine or metabolic. So if you're looking at somebody who's got ketosis, what key, it's kind of interesting when you look at diabetic ketosis. One of the earlier presentations for patients is they often, especially when they're young, they come in with belly pain and vomiting. And the reason why is because their ketones are going up and they often get misdiagnosis as a gastroenteritis. So just a little pearl there, something very similar, very simple that we can do to help uh, make sure that the, the individual doesn't have diabetes is just to do a urine test. You shouldn't see glucose in their urine. If you're seeing glucose in the urine, that is a red flag. So as ketones rise, that's where the vomiting comes from. I is the infection. T is toxicity. So there can be uh, related to some pharmacotherapy. I think about digitoxin. I think about some of the anticonvulsants. Any of these medications sometimes can stimulate vomiting. The I is the increased in intracranial pressure or it can also be related to a stroke, especially a stroke in the processing area, which is the postrema of the uh, of the brain. The N is neurogenic, and the GI has to do with gestation or pregnancy. So the other toxicity that to think about the other T would be something like a substance use or withdrawal as well, so alcohol or withdrawal. So that's a good little mnemonic that you can use. The other thing is that it can be really challenging to to diagnose uh, cannabis uh, in the emergency department because sometimes patients have a lot of shame and there's a lot of stigma. So they might uh, withhold that information. But it's important to tell patients the information is important because we want to get them the help that's going to target this vomiting and that's going to make them feel better. And like we mentioned, there are many conditions that will mimic this. So we want to make sure that we're doing the the appropriate history and physical on this patient. Um, I don't want to do a lot of workup sometimes, especially if that patient's been previously worked up. Not only does it increase the risk of patients uh, getting exposure to radiation, is that it creates a lot of distress sometimes for patients, especially when those investigations come back normal and they're not making the connection to the cannabis. Even referrals to a specialist often will lead to other unnecessary tests for most of these patients, but every case is going to be individual and we need to be able to be open to um, what is necessary for that patient without over-investigating. So there's been a number of attempts recently to really look, as we're starting to see this fairly commonly now, is proposed criteria for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So what are some of the criteria? So what is essential to diagnose is chronic use of cannabis, often daily. And what they recommend is use that is longer than three months especially the complications that the patient has. So the vomiting has recurred over those three months as well. So generally patients are using it longer than that, but when you start to see them vomit for more than three months... The major features include the cyclic nausea and vomiting, the resolution of those symptoms when they stop using cannabis, that pathognomonic symptom around the hot showers and baths to relieve the symptoms, uh, the belly pain, and at least weekly use of marijuana, often daily. So we talked about that. So the pathognomonic behavior around the bathing is usually they're getting in the bathtub more than 10 times per day, or they're spending at least five hours bathing. So it is diagnostic of uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So the supportive feature is often if they're under the age of 50 years old. Now that might change actually in particular because we're seeing that older age groups that are starting to use cannabis more recreationally. And that becomes more challenging because as we get older, obviously our pathophysiology increases. So there are chances of more conditions that are more worrisome, obviously, of our, uh, so things like uh, malignancies and things like that. So oftentimes the older age group will get more investigations, whereas younger age groups tend to not require as much investigation, but each case is going to be in an individual based case. Oftentimes they um, have not had significant weight loss, but they can have some weight loss. And usually it's less than five kilo. They tend to get more symptoms in the morning. Uh, they actually have normal bowel habits. Uh, they don't get a lot of diarrhea. And your workup is incredibly unremarkable. So your laboratory, your diagnostic imaging, your endoscopy, all that stuff tends to come back normal. So it's it's quite an interesting group of symptoms that can help you diagnose this. So we're going to stop there. And what I'm going to do is pick it up in a couple of weeks, and we're going to talk about some of the treatment. And if you have any interesting experience around cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, I've been trying to trend out the literature around this, and I'm starting to see more and more literature. And I will put up some references to some of the papers that are out there. If people are interested in reading this. But we're going to stop there, and then next time we're going to pick up around the treatment and the management of this very interesting condition. So have a great week, everybody. Uh, Stay safe. Keep yourself connected to the people and things that matter in your life, and just keep that structure, day-to-day structure. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.